What is effective evangelism? How should evangelism be done? Do you have an opinion on that topic? You may have an idea of what you think good uh, biblical evangelism looks like. Maybe you got it from your previous church or your background, seeing someone lead an evangelism. Maybe it was um, an experience in street evangelism and you got to participate with a street preacher. Maybe it was an evangelistic crusade that you went to and you saw it come into town and it was just put together so well. Or maybe it was a weekly altar call in church each Sunday morning where sinners would be called up front to repent. Maybe I know some of you are followers of Ray Comfort and his uh, rather confrontational style um, in evangelism. Some of you, like me, may have a background in um, James Kennedy's old evangelism program called Evangelism Explosion, going out and visiting the visitors of the church and presenting the gospel in the context of their own home. Maybe for you, it's more door-to-door witnessing. Just get out, knock on doors, and see what God does. Maybe you think of an evangelistic Bible study in a home because you've seen that done um, well with hospitality and it's kind of what you picture. Or summer camps or passing out tracts in the park or an evangelistic movie like The Jesus Project. The truth is that there are hundreds of ways to spread the gospel in our culture and we should be very thankful for that. The freedoms we have that we could right now, if we wanted to put the time and the energy into it, could come up with 101 different ways, literally, of doing witnessing and implement it, and we wouldn't be stopped from doing any of those. Think about that. Think about what uh, opportunity we have afforded us in this country at this time um, with freedom of religion. The only thing really that limits us is our creativity or our willingness to work at it. What if I were to ask you about the early church? and said, how do you think that they did evangelism? Everybody knows that they caused the gospel to spread far and wide. How is it that they were so effective? What did they do? What was their strategy? What was their method? What I'm really asking you is, what is biblical evangelism? As a church, we are careful to have biblical preaching. (laughs) At least we try to have it. Biblical counseling, biblical leadership, biblical fellowship. Lots of things we try to be biblical about. But do we really have biblical evangelism? Our church needs to follow the biblical pattern of evangelism, as in all areas of ministry. We need a strategy for the future. How are we, Hope Bible Church, going to do a more effective job of spreading the gospel locally, but also far and wide? We get a theology of evangelism from the Bible. We need to take a close look in the Bible and at evangelism so it will not only inspire us, but it will inform us. How do we do it effectively? And I think if we all agree on what we ought to be doing in local evangelism and how to do it, it will also help the unity of our church. So to that end, I'm dedicating what I thought was going to be a one-time message on evangelism And as I got into it, the Lord directed me to extend it a little. I'm not sure how long it'll be right now, but it's at least two parts. I I want these messages to be practical to you, not just theoretical. So part of the time, it's going to sound like I'm not preaching and we're having more like an in-house discussion about what we could do. 
Part of the time, it will be the normal Bible study, the exposition of the text. In the end, I guess I'm hoping that God takes it and improves your own personal witnessing, apart from anything we do collectively as a church. But then it'll also inspire some of you with an idea as you're sitting there, yep, any one of you, young or old, uh, leader or not leader, to say, hey, how come our church isn't doing blank? And maybe the Lord will use you to get that going. Our profitable and practical text is Acts 11, verses 19 through 26. Please turn there. I'm going to read it now, Acts 11, 19 to 26. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of God was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. It's a fascinating passage. Really, this is a glimpse into the life of the church. It's a full of information about evangelism. These early Christians really are setting a pattern for us. It's only history. There's no command here that any one local church do evangelism this way or that way. But as we read in the epistles, we find a lot of the principles there that are also found here. New Testament teaching corresponds, I think, quite closely with what we read here in history and gives us a biblical theology or biblical understanding of evangelism. I do believe that God has already been using Hope Bible Church through many years to spread the gospel, not just overseas, but around here as well. But there is more we can do, and um, we can do it in more effective ways. Through following the pattern of the early church, I want us to learn some ground rules for biblical evangelism. That's our outline, ground rules for biblical evangelism, and I'm going to give them to you as we go. The first ground rule is that everybody should evangelize. If we look back at verses 19 and 20, we'll see that. Everyone should evangelize. That's the first ground rule for evangelism. Notice how it says, so then those who are scattered, those who were scattered. Well, the whole church was scattered, if you remember, back in uh, Acts chapter 7 and 8, because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen. They made their way, and here are the new territories in which they went into, Phoenicia and Cyprus and then Antioch, which is a city. And what were they doing? What were those who were persecuted and scattered doing? And the answer is they were speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. That's at the beginning. And then verse 20, 
But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also. We'll stop there. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, it indicates that there are some that are given the spiritual gift of apostleship and some that are given a gift of being a prophet or prophecy. And then there's some who are evangelists and some who are pastor teachers. So that indicates that just as being a prophet or being a pastor is a gift or a spiritual gift from God, so also there are some who have the spiritual gift of evangelism. They are gifted as evangelists. Philip, for example, was one of those men. He's actually called an evangelist in Acts chapter 21 and verse 8. But here we see everyone, not just those who are gifted in evangelism, but everyone, all believers that were scattered, doing evangelism. It's evangelism because they're preaching the Lord Jesus to people who were not yet uh, knowledgeable of Christ and certainly not yet placed their faith in Christ. Timothy, who was a pastor, and as far as we know, was never called an evangelist, was told in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5 that he as a pastor was to do, quote, the work of evangelism. So people who are not gifted with evangelism still are supposed to do the work of evangelism, and that, my friends, includes you. Whether you are young or you are old, I hope you understand as the first ground rule that it is God's express will that you be spreading the gospel of the Lord Jesus to other people who are unsaved. Now, this scene here goes back to the scattering that was due to the persecution back in chapter 7 and chapter 8. We saw even back then in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4 that evangelism was being done not just by Peter and the apostles, but by everybody. It even said back in chapter 8, verse 4, that all those that were scattered went around preaching the word wherever they went. Some of them made their way to Samaria, and we read about that in chapter 8, how the word of God spread in Samaria. We also saw Philip witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch. So the persecution in Jerusalem, whatever Satan had designed to hurt, discourage, and diminish the church, it didn't really work. It was used by God to spread the word far beyond Judea and to get the gospel of the Lord Jesus going further and further. Satan had his plan, but God outmaneuvered Satan and used even persecution to spread the word. God's purposes and God's word will always prevail, even when he has what you may consider to be weak instruments to use. His power is so great, he can take anybody at any level in their faith and use them to lead somebody to Christ. Isn't that exciting? Here there are three more regions or places that are mentioned where the word of God spread. Phoenicia. If we're looking at a map and you have your Bible maps there, hopefully in your study Bibles, it is the land that is along the coast. So it moved toward the Mediterranean coast in the west. It would include places like Tyre and Sidon. And then Cyprus is mentioned. That's an island in the Mediterranean Sea, about 100 miles off of the coast. There were many, many Jews on the island of Cyprus at that time because of what was called the Diaspora. Cyprus is an island that will come up again and again in Christian mission. Actually, it's the place where Barnabas was from as well. So it becomes a key kind of launching pad for uh, Christian mission. And then Antioch is mentioned. This city, Antioch, is going to become one of the most important cities in all of Christendom. 
I know up till now that if we were to say to you what was the most important city in, in the church's life, everyone should say Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem was the mother church. It was the birthplace of the church. It's where the Holy Spirit descended. It's where the witness of Christ began. But you are going to see in the book of Acts that this city of Antioch becomes uh, just as important, maybe even some would regard more important for evangelism and Christian mission. And we'll see that again and again uh, in Acts. Uh, it was actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire uh, behind Rome and behind Alexandria. So it was a major, major metropolitan area and one which the Lord would use to launch much evangelism, not so much to more Jews, but to the Gentiles. Notice again, and I'm saying this now for about the fourth time, everybody was speaking. So I say again, evangelism is for every Christian. It's for you. And you can't evangelize if you don't come to grips with the fact that you're going to have to open up your mouth and speak. Your nice, kind, caring lifestyle is not enough to be an evangelist. If you want to see somebody saved, if you're praying that God would use you to have somebody saved, then they have to accept a message. The message has words. And so the words are going to need to come out of somebody's mouth, and that mouth may be yours. So if you have read in some book on evangelism somewhere that speaking is not really all that important in evangelism, I would advise you not to read that book anymore. They misguided you. Biblical evangelism requires talking or at least writing or spreading what someone else has said or what someone else has written. It's communicating a gospel message that has words. You could pass out tracts in hopes they will read, but better yet, if you just have the opportunity to take a couple of minutes and ask them, do you even know what the good news is about Jesus? If they say no, then ask them, may I explain it to you? If they say no, you haven't lost anything. If they say yes, you may have gained a brother or sister for eternity. Think about that. Just one simple question. Do you know what the good news is about Jesus Christ? Some of you are going to have to get past your fears. You're going to have to take this part of your Christian growth more seriously, and you're going to have to make a major prayer request about God dealing with your fears. It's no good to pray a prayer request, by the way, and not take the next steps of obedience because God can tell you're not all that serious about your prayer request. If you want courage, then you actually have to, after you pray for courage, you have to make yourself available to go and speak. If you don't, then God knows that you're not really all that serious about your prayer request, so he's going to wait to answer it until you are more serious. But when you come to grips with the fact that you are cowardly, and that's the main reason why you're not speaking the gospel, and you then enroll yourself in something that will help challenge your fears, then I can, I can trust, I think you can trust, that God's going to answer your prayers, and he's going to use you. Yes, it may be nervous Nelly for a while, but God is going to expand your courage, and he's going to use you. Again, I say you cannot evangelize if you don't speak. You're going to have to speak. You do not have to speak with total strangers. You do not have to have the gift of gap. You do not have to be a highly uh, skilled person and carrying on a conversation. No, you don't. You just have to explain a simple message, and you can do that. All of you can do that. You can cultivate relationships with people, and then after you cultivate the relationships with someone, after you've already connected with them, after you feel comfortable around them, don't wait too long, 
And then you can bring up the gospel in that context, but you're going to have to speak. If you act kindly, if you serve other people, if you're generous with your possessions, that will open doors for you to give the gospel to others. If you act obnoxious, if you are impatient, if you act like you're a know-it-all and you just want to spit out the gospel to someone, I doubt there are too many people that are going to want to listen to the gospel from you. But if you are polite, if you're reverent, if you're humble in your approach, and you back it up with actions where you care for people, no, not everybody that you care will want to hear the gospel, but more will want to hear it that way than other ways. I remember when I was working with relocating refugees in Atlanta, Georgia, refugees who'd come from overseas, from Vietnam and Cambodia and Afghanistan. This was back in the 80s. Um, There was... uh, the the, uh, organization I worked with called World Relief had a film and the name of the film was called Empty Bellies Have No Ears. And it was trying to get across to the conservative church in America that it's fine that you want to evangelize, but you've got to do something about meeting the physical needs of people so they can tell you care for them. Empty bellies have no ears. If you want the ears open and you want them to listen, get out there and meet some of their needs. What a great title with a great message to the church. If we want expanding roles in evangelism in our culture, we're going to have to meet needs. We're going to have to show our love and our devotion. The kindness of hospitality for you in your home may be all that is needed to have your apartment or your townhouse or your little home or your large home be turned into an evangelism center. Do you realize that? Just the, the safe, happy practice, kind practice of hospitality. And women, you can lead the way in that. Please don't let anyone get into your head and make you think that if you're going out to try to convert somebody else and evangelize them, you are bad. You are wrong. You know, if you had a liberal college professor and he had a wrong view of the world and he said, you know, those Christian missions were so evil, they just went into new territories and tried to show their culture was better than someone else's culture and convert the natives and that was all wrong. Please get all of that out of your head. There will be millions of natives that are in heaven and very grateful someone took time to bring the gospel to their culture. Get that out of your head. Christianity is not for one group of people. Christianity is not a white man's religion. Jesus was Middle Eastern, by the way. (laughs) God stuck Israel right in the middle of the whole world, in a sense, right at the crossroads of the three largest continents, or at least at that time. You had... You have Asia, and you have Europe, and you have Africa, and where do you think the gospel went first from that tiny little island, that tiny little little, uh, country, Israel, right in the middle of all of that? It went out to those three continents, right? Evangelizing is a noble thing. Can you imagine getting into the courts of heaven and Jesus looking at you and saying, I can't believe you were talking about me as Savior to other people and reprimanding you? No, he's going to give you a reward. It's a noble thing. Do you know anybody who's wiser than the Lord Jesus? If he thinks evangelizing is noble, then shouldn't we think the same thing? Really, it's one of the kindest things that you can do for somebody else. Sure, it might get them upset with you for a while, but it's going to bring them the truth of their existence. I mean, they're walking in darkness, and all of a sudden their eyes are going to be open to who they are, and that will be because of your courage. It will set them up for blessing in the future, salvation. Just avoiding hell is enough reason to do it, right? We should have the attitude of the angel who announced at Jesus' arrival in Luke 
chapter 2 and verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for who? All the people, right? That's you. You're bringing good news of a great joy. Brothers and sisters, the first ground rule is evangelism is for everyone. Second ground rule, use your natural connections. Use your natural connections. Again, this is also what we see in verses 19 and 20. I'm not going to reread it. But if you look at it, that's exactly what happened. Where did these guys go? Well, they were persecuted, so they lost their home in Jerusalem, right? And then they went. Where did they go? Let's think about that a little. At first, these, these Jews spoke to whom they were comfortable with. They went and spoke only to other Jews. Well, people are always looking for that great evangelism strategy. How do we do it? Uh, I like creativity and evangelism. We do need new ideas sometimes. Um, and we'll talk about some of those creative ideas in this series, I hope. But really, if you think about it, what God's strategy is in evangelism is simply this. God's strategy is men. Men. God's, I could put it this way, God's method for evangelism in this world is men. I don't mean to exclude the women when I say that, you realize, right? God is using human beings is the point. What's God's method for reaching the world? Answer, you and me. Men, human beings. Well, as far as these guys understood at this point in time, they went and spoke to other Jews because they thought, well, it's the message of the Jewish king. And as far as they were concerned, it was only for other Jews. But if they were Jewish businessmen and they were kicked out of Jerusalem and they were fleeing for their lives, where did they go? Who did they talk to? How did they gain connections? Well, I think it was a very normal and natural thing that happened. For example, if they were businessmen and then they were traveling, they would probably have connected with other people that they had done business with before. They maybe had connections through trade routes and they followed those with people that they knew. They connected they tried to set up shop in a new area, and they began to speak where they went. If they fled persecution, um, they may have gone to relatives' homes somewhere else. They may have traveled 100 miles over here or 50 miles over there, and they would have told their story and what happened and how they fled for their lives, and their relatives would have said, come on in, we'll house you for a while, and they began with their relatives as a connection. Or if they had a bunch of treasures with them and they were a little richer, they may have tried to reestablish their business or their trade elsewhere, and then they would have immediately started connecting with people through their trade. Some of them may have owned land elsewhere, and where would they go if they lost their home in Jerusalem? And the answer is they would go to where they owned land. I'm just saying all of this so that you can get the picture that there was not some grand evangelism strategy. We're not going to read one of these verses here in the Bible and come across, oh, there's the secret, Eureka. We never really understood that was how to do evangelism. The way God did evangelism, he just said, just go and uh, in your natural course of going, in the natural course of whom you speak to, talk to them and tell them what you know. It's actually a brilliant strategy if you think about it, right? No one of us is all that important to reach the world. You're going to reach people that I can't reach. And this other guy is going to reach people you can't reach. Does that make sense? Well, I don't think before they left Jerusalem, they all huddled in a room and said, guys, we haven't really thought about an evangelism strategy. Now that we're all being scattered and we're about to be thrown in jail, let's have a seminar of the seven best ways to do evangelism. 
I really doubt they did that. I think they just went and they talked and they got connected and they talked. Some of them talked more than others, right? Some of them really like to talk a lot. And others, you know, maybe not all that talkative. They still found maybe someone was a slave. They talked to a fellow slave, a servant talking to a fellow servant. It just was natural for them. They were scattered and they act like normal people. They had normal contacts and they spoke there. Women probably naturally spoke with other women. Older people standing around in certain circles probably immediately identified with other older people. They said, let me tell you what I observed that was going on. And then that would lead into a discussion about the Lord Jesus Christ. Some were obviously more adept at speaking and they might have taken on a more formal role as they went into the synagogue. They would have asked for more uh, permission to be able to explain more and to teach more Bible. Their knowledge was greater and God used them in evangelism in a greater way. But everybody did a little something. I think others helped evangelism by backing up the teachers and assisting them. There are some people in here who are gifted in evangelism, but they're not very gifted at organizing anything. And they could use your gift of organization so that the ministry would develop and they can get out there and do what they're really good at, right? Sometimes we don't get local church, uh, local church evangelism ministries going because they start with the enthusiasm of someone who loves evangelism, but they, they don't continue because it's not well organized. Well, we need people to back up evangelists and help the thing be well organized. Some of them, no doubt, were Hellenistic Jews, as we see here, and they decided when they went to Antioch, they would not speak only to Jews. They would also speak to Greeks. Now, scholars have debated what Luke meant when he used the word Greeks here. Did he mean only those that were actually Greeks, or did he? is this another term that is used to mean those that are of Greek culture and really is a synonym for Gentiles? And I kind of think that that's what he's referring to because you see it used elsewhere like that in the New Testament, that Greeks, the Greeks being the dominant culture of the Gentile world at that time was just shorthand for saying, speaking not just to Jews, but to Gentiles as well. But again, if they were positioned by God through God's own providence in their background, in other words, they were quite comfortable with Greek culture they were quite comfortable with Gentile people, they knew a lot of Gentiles, then going and talking to the Gentiles was a natural thing for them. They would find open doors there, they would be relaxed about it, and they would speak. There's nothing earth-shattering happening here. People are being normal, and they're going and speaking the gospel. And what was the great secret of evangelism? Again, we say just the normal spread of the gospel from man to man. And I think if you think about this, this speaks volumes to us about how to do evangelism. If I stopped right here with this ground rule and I said nothing else about evangelism, you would know that it's your responsibility to go out and evangelize and you would know that you should start exactly where you are. The people that you already know and maybe even electronic contacts that you have, right? You know, through the years we have, we have asked those in the visitor center to supply the leaders with some statistics and some information about how is it that people came to Hope Bible Church? How do most of them find our church or decide to come to this church? And you could ask yourself that question as well. But consistently, there have been two dominant ways people have found this church and chosen to come to this church. The first was our internet site, and the second, which actually accounts for more than even the internet site, which is number one, is people inviting other people to come to church. Did you know that? 
between just those two things, and thank God for our internet people because that works all the time, and who knows how it's working as a ministry uh, with people right now who could just look the church up, right, read about it. They don't have to commit to anything. It's all behind the scenes. They feel comfortable. They check it out. They may even be listening now, right? And, you know, what is this church all about? But the number one thing is just guys and gals like you saying, you know what, I'm going to invite somebody to church. That makes up about three-fourths of all the visitors we get at Hope Bible Church. Of course, many of our visitors who come are already Christians, and they're looking for a church. But I have found that a lot of evangelism now is done by people who want to go to church, think that they're saved, and really have never been told that they have to repent from their sin, that's what real faith is, and get converted. We actually find that the ones that are more responsive to the gospel are not necessarily unchurched Harry and Mary, as some people call it, but people that are actually looking for a church, have had some background in church, but come in here and realize what the gospel really entails and realize that they're not saved. And then they hear the teaching and then they get saved. In other words, inviting people to church may be one of the easiest and best ways to perform evangelism. As we will see In one of our later points, the New Testament puts a heavy emphasis on teaching as part of evangelism. A lot of people think evangelism is just a quick thing. I'm just going to give a quick four-point outline, and that's fine if you do that, by the way. But a lot of people will not respond to the gospel in that brief of a time. We're finding more and more people have a skeptical background, and they need more teaching. They need more of their objections answered before they come to faith, right? I mean, if you give a four-point gospel outline, you tell them that God is the creator, right? That's the first point, and that he has the right over everyone's life to tell them how to live. The second point is that man decided not to live the way God told him to do, and that's called sin, and he incurred the judgment of God because of that. The remedy that God provided was not religion, but Jesus Christ, right? That God sent his son to pay for our sins and to rise again and secure eternal life for us through the resurrection of the dead. And now the response he's looking for, number four, is faith. You must place your faith in uh, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what most of the gospel outlines will have. Those four points are some variation of that. And if you use that kind of a gospel booklet or that kind of a gospel track, that's great. Do that, use that. God still uses that to save people. I'm just saying that often in our culture, that's not enough. And what you'll find even in that culture is what we hear when there's a a massive explosion of people getting saved, we're hearing something that was kind of abnormal. Most of the time after the initial evangelism was done in an area, evangelism went much slower in that territory. Well, that's what we're dealing with here in America in what's called a post-Christian culture. And it takes more teaching. It takes more initiative. And so teaching is part of the, uh, the way that we evangelize as well. So... I would just say, in your situation, think about it. You work with other people. You have colleagues. Your children take lessons with other children and their families are involved there. You have neighbors. I think most of you have neighbors anyways. These are God-given connections. They're already there for you. One of the women in our church started a Bible study at her apartment. You might be thinking, I live in an apartment. There's nothing there somebody would want to come to. Well, this godly woman said, you know what? I'm going to reach out to the people in my apartment and start a Bible study. And it's, it, it really is an evangelism Bible study for the most part. Some people will come, and then they won't come back for a while. Then they'll come again. But if you're faithful to continue to advertise it, continue to have it, then God can use that. If you have a concern for the poorer citizens around us, you could think creatively. It could be you that starts a food closet. 
You could start some other means of helping people tangibly. You could bring that to the deacons and the elders and say, I wish our church did such and such. And of course, you're going to have to get it started if you come to them and say that. And then in that context, present the gospel. You think people will listen more in that context? I think they will. We used to have in our worship service right here, we're in one of our former locations, Spanish translators of our sermons. Do you realize what that would do to open the door for some people that really can't understand all of this English? I wish someone would be led by God to start that again. What an outreach that could be. Or if not that, then start a Spanish Bible study in the home, right in the comfort of your own home and invite folks there. Wow, what God may do with that if you just will take a step of faith. Education of children is in high demand in our culture. Education is also another way to reach the lost because parents are so concerned that your children get proper education and they often turn to churches and to Christian institutions because they, even though they don't want to get saved, they recognize that there's character there, that they want their children around. How God can use Hope Academy or other expressions of education and evangelism. We don't have to have, though, a formal evangelism ministry. It all just goes on all the time. You can do many things without the church ever having a formal ministry in that area. Many of you just need to exercise faith and then share your faith as God leads you to do that. Are you a good cook? I know some of you are because I've been receiving some of your meals. Well, you know how you could use that, right? Think about that. You want to cook something for someone you hear is a little down. No, they're not part of the church. You're not sure if they're saved. You include a little note and maybe a gospel track along with that. That's wonderful. Are you good at sports? Uh, my, uh, my second daughter uh, did a sports evangelism camp because that was something she was good at. And uh, my first daughter was part of a sports camp in Tanzania as well through uh, a missions organization. Sports opens all kinds of doors. You'll, it'll require some, uh, some uh, planning on your part. But boy, people will come to a camp like that and, and uh, you can evangelize them. Sue and I did day camps for four summers and we were able to do a lot of evangelism through that. Are you dual language? Think how God could use that, teaching English as a second language and using that forum for evangelism. Are you a runner? Wouldn't it be really cool if we could sponsor as a church a 5K and then have that? And then in the midst of that, of course, you share the gospel. Are you a former Roman Catholic? Buy a solid video or a video series. Invite your Catholic acquaintances to your home. Show it. Have a discussion. Ask one of the leaders to come in that context and help answer the tougher questions that you might receive in that situation. Do you love backyard grilling? Well, not in January, but you know what I mean. Invite the neighbors. In the midst of talks with them, invite them to your church. If they seem interested in coming to church, present to them the gospel. The ideas are endless. The connections... God has already given you. A lot of these evangelism ministries don't happen because no one puts the time into them. You don't have to be a leader to help. Many of you can do this from your own home. You will have so much joy knowing that God used you to lead someone to Christ, or at least to begin to plant the seed, and later they come to Christ. People, expand your vision, expand your prayers, and see how God uses you. Now, the third ground rule is, and this is important, look at verse 20, at the end of verse 20, and this is essential. It's simply this, preach the right message. (laughs) After you go through all of that trouble, don't just talk about religion and how much you like the potluck at your church and all the rest of that. That ain't going to save nobody. Make sure 
Look at the end of verse 20. It tells what they preached. They preached what? The Lord Jesus. There it is. There's the right message. Preach the right message. Obviously, that's shorthand for preach everything about Jesus. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his appearances. Memorize it. Study the gospel. Get more adept at sharing it. This is what they were doing throughout all of Acts. And maybe you remember some of these verses we covered earlier. Acts 5 and verse 42 says, Every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. There was the right message. Acts chapter 8, verse 12 in Samaria, when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. There it is. Acts chapter 8, verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began from the scripture he preached Jesus to him. That was the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts chapter 10, verse 36. The word which God sent to the sons of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Well, there it is again and again. Preach Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. I decided to know nothing among you Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Talk about Jesus. Talk about his crucifixion. Talk about his resurrection. Explain faith. Explain why you have to be saved and why you need faith in Christ. What is the lesson for us in a practical sense? Well, I would say this. When you're out there talking, stay on message. Sometimes evangelism fizzles because we let our conversations be steered by the other person and we want to prove how much we know or that we're right about some issue. That's a bad idea. I have found that people really want to avoid talking about Jesus and their own sinful heart. They would really love to change the subject to something religious. Oh, I see you're religious. What do you think about Trump and, and his support of the church or whatever? What do you think about uh, archaeology, or what do you think about uh, the, something that's in the news that's been discovered? And they just quickly shift the subject to whatever is the politics of the day or to whatever is the, the latest debate of the day, right? What do you think about those Muslims, you know? And now you're all excited about sharing what you know about that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And sometimes people have a real genuine objection and they, they don't understand how, you know, the Bible really can be the word of God. They're not really sure how someone could be raised from the dead. Deal with the objection briefly, but come back to what? Come back to the message because they're not going to be saved because, you know, you tell them all the evidences that you happen to know about why Christianity is true. They're, they're going to be saved because God convicts them of their sin and judgment and they realize that Jesus Christ is the only solution. I remember, um, I remember Dr. MacArthur saying that if he had one hour to talk with someone about, uh, about an unsaved person, about the gospel, he would spend the first 45 minutes talking about sin and judgment first before he even got to the solution because people need to know, they need to know why they even need Christ. They need to know that they're sinners. But the point is the solution is always Jesus and we always come back to Jesus. Don't let others steer the conversation. Shift it back uh, to what you need to talk to them about. Bring it back to the Lord Jesus. Keep speaking of him. If they're going to come to faith, it's not because they recognize that you're smarter than them. It's going to be because they hear something that convicts their heart of their need. The wisdom of 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 helps guide us here as well. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, 
always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Did you know the way you speak gently to others, not preaching like I'm preaching here in the pulpit, but you speak gently to them and you speak politely and and with reverence, that may win them more than anything. Sometimes people get saved and they're so excited about sharing the gospel with their relative. But if you go too fast and you're too impatient, you'll push them further away than you will draw them in. That's especially true if you're a younger member of the family. And now you at 18 or 20 or 25 are going to rush to grandma who's 72 and you're going to tell her what she hasn't learned in 72 years of her life. That's hard to swallow. But if you approach it gently and you approach it politely and you ask permission to share some of the things and you don't say too much all at once, you have a better chance of having ongoing conversations. You have a better chance of them respecting you and coming to church with you when you invite them, you see? Because they don't view you as being somebody who's going to be in their face and impolite, but someone who's genuinely going to speak a message that will help them. Yes, your mannerism may be as important as the message that you speak. Be humble. Be willing to listen to them. Ask them some questions about why it is they don't believe or what they're stuck on. I was witnessing to someone recently, and he confided in me, I guess I'm just still angry for what God did when my father died when I was younger. And I was like, well, I understand. You know, losing a dad is hard. I lost my dad too when I was younger. I wish that he had been around the last 32 years for me. But I didn't blame God, and I went on to talk about why I didn't blame God. And while God is good, and I tried to break down what they had built up in their own heart, but I couldn't have gotten there if I hadn't asked and said, What's going on in your heart? What is it that's holding you back? Sometimes people don't even know. They just think it's just like intellectually inferior to be a believer. They don't realize that some of the most brilliant men who ever walked this planet, scientists, etc., have been firm believers in all of the Bible, and that's true today as well. They just haven't been exposed to that. They've bought a lot of misconceptions that society has thrown at them. Listen, I'm not a very good uh, fisherman. Uh, and because I don't want to stand and, and hold a rod over water and wait for something to happen that I don't think is going to happen. <laughs> but Jesus did describe evangelism as fishing for who? For men, right? And there's something that I know is true about being a good fisherman is you have to be prepared, right? And then you have to be patient. If you're not prepared with all the equipment you need, you know, and then you don't go to the right place as well. You go to the right, the right fishing hole. And then you're not patient with it. You're not going to make a very good fisherman. Well, it's the same way. You, you can't leave and think like, I'm going to be Peter and 5,000 people are going to come to Christ the first time I preach my first sermon. Ain't going to happen, bro. Ain't going to happen. But what may happen is you will plant some seeds and people want to come and listen to you because you spoke to them to their heart, because you showed care for them, right? Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Well, that takes time. That takes training. That takes patience. Don't act arrogant. Don't cut people off. Don't, don't rush to get to the gospel because you feel they're talking too long. Uh, treat them the way you would treat someone in church, politely, right? If you're going to catch men, that's what you're going to have to do. Now, I want you to notice one more thing before we close here. In preaching Jesus, it says that Jesus is Lord, right? Preaching Jesus as Lord. Don't preach Jesus just as Savior, people. 
Oh, he can save you from hell. Preach him as Lord. What does that mean? Young people in here, do you know when we're always talking about Jesus as Lord in church, do you know what that means? That means he's the guy that tells all the rest of us what to do. That means that we're all under his authority, including mom and dad. We all obey him, right? To preach Jesus as Lord means when I come to believe in him, I'm going to have to submit to his authority and learn from his teaching, right? It means he's master. It means he has the power. He has power over demons. He has power over all the kings, presidents, congresses, and parliaments of this world as well. Jesus is never to be described as one among many that you might believe in. That's the way many talk of him now. We're not going to tell people, why don't you give Jesus a try? He is Lord. Explain his authority. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. What does that mean? Go into the world and make people be underneath my authority and learning from me. Make disciples of all the nation. Explain that authority. Explain the judgment of God. Explain that all of that judgment and all of that authority has been given to Jesus. We never merely coexist, right? We proclaim repentance and we proclaim surrender to a king. This world will never be controlled by Islam because Islam is not true submission to the Lord our God. True submission to God is believing in and obeying his son. That's what it says in John 5. Verses 21 to 24, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son of God also gives life to whomever he wishes. For not even the father judges anybody, but God the father has given all judgment to the son. Why? So that all will honor the son even as they honor the father. The one who does not honor the son of God, the one who does not honor Jesus Christ, does not honor the Father who sent Jesus Christ. I would love to hold a contest and have someone in here come up with a bumper sticker or maybe a t-shirt for our whole church, one that would really honor the Lord Jesus Christ, one that we would not be ashamed to put on our cars to get the message out, Jesus is Lord over all and he will not share or coexist with anyone else. He will transcend all other messages and all other rulers. Maybe one of you who loves art and who loves evangelism will come up with something like that for the rest of us. The right message means that we too need to scrutinize the way we do evangelism. Every track that you pass out, you need to read it. Make sure it has the right message. When you hand a book to somebody else, make sure it's presenting the gospel as Jesus as Lord. We want to convey to the community around us that we know what the gospel is. We're educated in biblical things. They can trust the accuracy of the teaching that we give here. And a lot of that has to do with how you present that gospel and the kind of written materials that you pass out as well. We need to get the message right. We don't want to drift with what is popular in the culture. Our message is Jesus is Lord over all. That's the message we preach. That's the message we continue to preach. We're going to pick up with ground rule number four, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. Father, thank you for entrusting the message of the gospel with us. As weak as we are and as disobedient as some have been not to present the gospel, I pray that you would use this series to awaken the conscience of our church that every one of us is responsible to get the gospel out, starting where we are, preaching the right message that Jesus is Lord.
May we start there, Lord, and continue to learn. Be with your people. Protect them. Give them inspiration. Give them creativity. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.